Life with kids isn't easy. We all want the best for our little ones, especially as they grow. In this episode, we share the strategies we use to foster a love of learning in our home that will empower you to strengthen your child's literacy and language skills to set them up for a lifetime of success in school, their career, and beyond. This is Life with Amy and Jordan. One of our favorite days when we were teaching elementary school was the day right before winter break. Because the kids were gone for two weeks. <laughs> uh, there was another reason besides that. I was the fourth grade teacher and Jordan was the fifth grade teacher. And the day before winter break, we planned to make everything really special and different for them. So instead of them coming in a single file line into the classroom in their red and blue uniforms with their khaki shorts and pants. Fun fact, most days that I was teaching, I wore khaki pants with loafers and a pleat and a polo. It was lovely. (laughs) It was a good look. (laughs) Very Mr. Demos. Um, Instead of them coming in in their regular uniforms, on that day, they got to come to school in their pajamas. So they got to wear their fuzzy slippers and their uh, printed PJ pants. Like A lot of the kids were into High School Musical at that time. Some of them would bring stuffed animals or blankets. (laughs) Yes. And so they got to come. You can Incidentally, you can tell a lot about a child by the pajamas they wear. You can. I was like, girlfriend, you should not be watching that show. You are too young. (laughs) So a lot of the kids would come into the classroom um, just excited. And when they would come in, they'd be greeted by the smell of gingerbread. And there'd be little uh, paper snowflakes hanging from the ceiling. And I'd call them over to our reading rug. And I'd sit in my uh, special reading chair, which was like one of those big wing back cozy chairs. And all the kids would gather around both the fourth and the fifth graders, my kids and Jordan's kids. And I would read the Polar Express. And as I was reading the Polar Express, the kids were in their pajamas, listening to the story, just like wrapped inside of this beautiful, kind of like magic story. And faintly next door, they could hear bells jingling and they knew something was going on next door in Mr. Demos's Mr. classroom. Mr. Demos was celebrating the end of the first semester. <laughs> But he was also secretly planning some fun stuff for them too. So when the book was over, we would uh, I would line all the kids up and we would line up outside of Mr. Demos's room in the pajamas. And Mr. Demos wasn't the one who walked out. It was the Polar Express conductor. And it was really Jordan wearing uh, a conductor's hat, a fake mustache, one of those pocket gold pocket watches with the chains on it, a vest, a suit. He looked really different than he did in his normal like khaki pants and polo attire. And he had like this special conductor voice. And he would actually take the tickets um, of all the kids to enter his classroom, which was not a classroom anymore. It was a train. So as they were leaving Amy's class, Mrs. Demos's class, she would hand them this ticket that was a ticket to a ride on the Polar Express. And so as the kids would come one by one up to my classroom, I would kind of like take my magnifying glass and kind of inspect the ticket. And I would kind of look at it and say, hmm, Sarah, you've been a very good girl this year. Welcome to the Polar Express. And it was like slightly creepy, but also slightly fun. <laughs> if you've seen the Polar Express movie, the Tom Hanks conductor is a little like creepy. He's kind of creepy. Yeah. And so um, then like as, as, as the next student would step up, maybe a student who was a little more mischievous or had kind of a funny personality, I would kind of inspect their ticket and maybe look at it and say, hmm, not so sure about you, Anthony. Back of the line. 
Just kidding. Welcome to the Polar Express. And all the kids would giggle and laugh. And as they entered Mr. Demos's classroom, all the desks were lined up like a train. And he had taken his computer cart and removed the computer, removed the projector. And there was hot cocoa sitting on the cart that he would wheel down the train aisles and pass out hot chocolate to all the kids. And it just really made the whole book come alive. It was just this magical experience where the book became part of of uh, their world for the day. And we had uh, the Polar Express movie ready to go. And it was just one of those really fun days where we hope that they would remember it long after they left fourth and fifth grade. And the reason that we're even bringing this up is because we just want to show you how passionate we've been for quite a long time about bringing books to life for kids and making reading special. And uh, it's just something we get really excited about because when we were teaching elementary school, we knew how important it was to foster a love for reading for our students because we really believed it was the most important thing we could do as teachers. That if our kids could leave our classrooms as lifelong learners, kids who loved to read, um, that they would be set uh, not only academically, but in their careers and beyond um, because we really believe that reading unlocks every everything. I know for something that Jordan and I say to each other often is that saying, um, what, how does that saying go? The next five years of your life will be determined by two things, the people you meet and the books you read. And we know that for our own lives, when we think back to things that have been really impactful for us in our own lives, we know that that's so true, that the books that we've read, whether it's business or parenting or life, faith, whatever we're reading about, those books have really impacted the way that we think and the way that we do life. Um, So all that to say, our goal for this episode is to empower you as a parent with practical tools to grow your child's love for reading and strengthen their literacy and language skills, which will set them up for success in school, their career, and beyond, really. And not only that, it just creates a really special bond between parent and child. So it's going to strengthen your relationship there. And we really believe reading also shapes children's character um, and promotes healthy communication, compassion, empathy, the list really goes on and on for us. Um, All the benefits that come from reading, which is why we say that this is really one of the greatest gifts that you can give your child is this love for learning and this lifelong appetite uh, for books and literacy and language and communication. And one thing we just want to say at the outset is there might be things that you hear in this episode today that you're already doing. And that is Great. That is awesome. Um, There may be things that you hear in this episode that you've never heard before, you've never thought of, or you never considered, or no one has ever presented to you as an idea. And we hope that you'll be able to take those new ideas that you learn and immediately start to apply them in your home to help give your children a love for reading and to help develop their language and communication skills. Um, But one thing we just want to mention from the outset is that Anything we mention in this episode, it is so easy as as a teacher, it's so easy as a parent to look back on the woulda, coulda, shouldas. And I know there are, we have a son who's 18 months old and his name is Beckett. And we look back on the first 18 months of his life and there are things that we, if we got a do-over or a mulligan, we would do them differently. There are also a lot of things that we've done well and we've done right and we're so proud of that. And so we just want to say to all the parents who are listening right now, um, the best place to start 
is right now. So it's okay to look back on the past and think, man, I really did these things well. I could have done these things better. But what we want to encourage you is not to beat yourself up for anything that you haven't done up until this point that you wish that you would have done as it relates to their reading or their language development. And this episode is is definitely geared toward parents, but it's not just for parents. So if you're a teen or you're a young adult who's maybe um, babysitting or working around kids in a different capacity, or you're an aunt or an uncle, so you're you're interacting with your nieces or your nephews, or maybe you're in the grandparent season and you're uh, spending time with your own grandkids right now, we really believe if you know a child, <laughs> if you have a child in your life, then there are things that we'll be able to share in this episode that will be life enhancing for them and hopefully for you as well. Um, You know, we just um, think about our own little guy who's 18 months right now in that toddler season. And we have a lot of parents, uh, a lot of friends who are parents in that toddler season right now. And something that we are all kind of talking about is like the dreaded toddler tantrums and the way those come out. Um, And one of the things that we've found um, that a lot of tantrums stem from is our our toddlers' inability to communicate. So for them to not have the words to be able to express how they're feeling or what they want is extremely frustrating for them. And that's where a lot of those tantrums come from, right? So if you're in that stage of the tantrum stage, we really believe that a lot of the things here that we're talking about in this episode will actually help mitigate, not remove (laughs) by any means. I don't think there's any magic wand that's going to remove all toddler tantrums. But the the more that we can focus on uh, developing language for our kids through reading and through some of the other things we're going to talk about today, um, that we'll actually be able to lessen the pain for all of us, our toddlers and us, as we continue forward. Yeah. When we started teaching, Amy taught fourth grade, I taught fifth grade. And one of the most sobering things that anyone ever said to us was someone at our school brought us in one day and our principal was there and our special education director was there. And they sat us down and they said, Mr. and Mrs. Demos, um, we want to bring something your, to your attention. And that is the fact that a child's academic identity is formed by the eight, by about fourth and fifth grade, meaning what a child believes about themselves academically. Am I a smart kid? Am I a dumb kid? What they believe about themselves academically is formed by around the age of 10. And so when Amy and I were, were, were aware of that statistic and made aware, made aware of that fact, we gave ourselves, had to take a good look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what do we believe about education? What do we believe about reading and writing and math? What are the things that we think are the most important in our classrooms? Because if a child's academic identity is formed by the age of 10, in so many ways, we were the Hail Mary pass. We were the very last people who were going to have an educational impact on these children before they hit puberty. And we all know there's a whole host of problems and complications that happen in middle school and in high school. And we were the kind of the last uh, gasp of childhood, right, for a lot of these kids, academically speaking. And so we had to take a good hard look at ourselves and say, okay, what do we believe? Like, do we believe that like basal reader textbooks are the way to go? Do we believe that spelling textbooks are the way to go? Is our job as fourth and fifth grade teachers to teach them to love a boring process that we hated in school ourselves? Worksheets. (laughs) Yeah, like worksheets. And, you know, three questions that you answer at the end of a two page story. That's really an extrapolation of, you know, a much larger, more interesting story. And (laughs) we came to the conclusion for us anyways, in our classrooms that the answer was no. No. 
that we wanted to foster a love of learning in our students. And we started with the premise of how do we like to learn? How do we want to learn? And we only had about a six hour day with our students. And so we decided to overemphasize reading and writing and math over everything else, but specifically reading, because like we said, we believe in so many ways that reading is the silver bullet that unlocks everything else in education. If you can read well, you can do social studies well. If you can read well, you can do science well. Good readers are good writers almost by default. And so what we decided to do was structure our classrooms differently than maybe a lot of other teachers would. And thank God we had a principal who allowed us that freedom. But what we decided to do instead is on our first day on the job, we locked the reading textbooks in the cabinet. We locked the spelling textbooks in the cabinet. And we created instead our own classroom libraries full of really interesting and exciting books that we wanted the kids to read. We used to spend hours and hours on the weekends rifling through used bookstores, taking money that had been donated from the PTO in order to buy 50 cent and dollar books to create our own libraries. And our day looked a lot different than maybe a lot of other teachers who were teaching the same grades at our school. Um, we would do 30 minutes a day of independent reading. We would do 30 to 60 minutes a day of a literature discussion where our students would read a chapter of a novel the night before, and we would spend 30 minutes to an hour sitting on a, in a circle on the floor discussing that book. We would read for 20 or 30 minutes out loud to our students after recess because we believed that the 30 minutes to an hour that the state recommended that our students should be reading every day just wasn't enough. And so we doubled that because we felt like it was so important. One of the things we tried to do is just make reading really cool. Like we used to talk about authors like they were celebrities. Um, and we pulled all of our writing lessons straight from the reading. So uh, whatever techniques th those authors were using, we would pull that into our writing lessons and our spelling words came from the chapter books. So every in every area of our classroom, we really tried to overemphasize the love and importance of reading. We used to tell the kids, we used to make them repeat it back to us uh, to the point where they were probably like rolling their eyes at us. Uh, readers are leaders or like good readers are good writers. Um, but it's because it's something that we believe in so deeply. And we wanted them to leave our classroom if they didn't remember almost anything else, that they would remember how important reading was. The reason we share all of that is because we've only been parents for 18 months. We have a toddler. We're still learning a lot. We definitely don't have all the answers, but we do have a really unique perspective on literacy and language development from our background as teachers. And because of that, we know what the research says. And I think one of the craziest stats I ever heard was the greatest amount of brain growth for our kids occurs between birth and age five. And in fact, by age three, roughly 85% of the brain's core structure is already formed, um, which is so wild to think about, like in the first three years, how formative that can be. Um, at birth, our baby's brains are only 25% of the adult size but by age three, they're already 80% of the adult size. So those first three years of development are so pivotal. Um, and of course, th those kids aren't in school yet, right? We don't have kids in school at, at those ages. So what can we do at home in order to foster that development in both literacy and language, especially knowing that that child's brain continues to triple um, in the first year and is virtually fully formed by the time they get to kindergarten? And I think because I spent the majority of my college education studying child development and particularly the importance of early childhood literacy, I became really passionate about this topic long before I had kids. 
So I was that friend that anytime I got invited to a baby shower, I was like buying a basket to create a gift basket. And then I would go to the store and hand select books to put in a basket and always give like a basket of books as a baby shower gift. And if you guys Um, have listened to any of the other episodes where we talk about being uh, being frugal and being good stewards of our money, mm-hmm. um, we were able to do that a lot of times by going to secondhand mm-hmm. bookstores yep. and finding books that were in almost new condition yeah, in secondhand condition. stores. So instead of paying $10 for a children's book at Target, we could sometimes find them for 50 cents or a dollar. And therefore, instead of giving you know our friends, kids, maybe one or two books, we could pack a basket with mm-hmm. 5, 10, 15 books. And almost create like a mini library for our friends. Um, and I remember when our first niece was born, one of our favorite things to do for every birthday and every Christmas was to pick out a book for her um, as a gift and write a really special note inside. So it's no surprise that when we became pregnant ourselves, we were already starting to brainstorm and think about how can we help ensure that our baby loves to read. So um, one of the things that we started doing is when I was pregnant in my third trimester, Jordan actually started singing (laughs) to my belly. Um, And one of the things that we always like tease each other on is that neither one of us has the best singing voice in the world. Um, But it's the most beautiful sound to each other's ears. I think over time we've, we've really learned to appreciate our off key. Yeah, sure. Whatever you say. (laughs) Um, And one of the reasons that he did that is because there is this study from the University of Florida that really impacted us that basically demonstrated how babies who are still in the womb in the third trimester can recognize songs, patterns, rhymes, rhythms. And they've done so much testing based on the baby's heart rate and how the baby's heart rate reacts to familiar voices, rhythms, songs. And so it made us realize like, wow, we can start now. Um, And it wasn't like, you know, all day long, he was singing to my belly. It was normally like, a minute or two before bed. Well, what we found is that usually whenever Amy was, whenever Amy is pregnant and she's, uh, I can say whenever she's pregnant. <laughs> because I'm pregnant right pregnant now. She's pregnant right now for the two. second time. So it's like we do this all the time. Um, <laughs> but whenever Amy it, it has been pregnant and she's laying down, when she is at rest, that's usually when our baby is the most active and, and awake. And so typically what I would do is I would sing to her belly um, in the morning when she would wake up. And then when we would lay down to go to bed at night, I would sing to her belly again. And for anybody wondering um, if you would like to sing the same, same song to your child, um, one of our favorite Broadway musicals is Hamilton. And there is a what's funny about Hamilton, by the way, is that Amy loves all the hardcore rap songs and she can rap them with the best of them. And I usually like the like slower romantic ballads, <laughs> preferably sang by the female characters. Um, in this case, though, I used to sing the song Dear Theodosia to Amy's belly. And uh, whether you're having, you know, a boy or a girl, uh, the song will work for you as well um, because it's two characters, one singing to his son and one singing to his daughter. And it's just a really beautiful song about a parent's hope and expectations and the future that they want to build for their child. And so if you're looking for a song to sing uh, to your to your wife's belly, that would be a, a recommendation from me. Yeah. If you, if you want to get a little more fancy than like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Yeah. Um, and so when it came time for our baby shower for Beckett, one of the things that we did um, in conjunction with Jordan's sister who hosted the shower is she knew reading was really important to us. So we had the idea to put in the invitations that instead of uh, bringing a card to bring a book to help build Beckett's library before he was even born. So by the time my baby shower was
was over, I had a really great library full of board books for Bex before he was even born. Um, and we did the same thing for his first birthday party. So when we, we had a big lion-themed first birthday for him, and on the invitation, we said you know, if you'd be willing in lieu of a toy, if you'd bring a book instead, we would really appreciate that. And it was so fun to see his eyes light up as he would open new books and read new books. Um, But, you know, if you're looking for ways, like Jordan mentioned, to get books in an affordable way, we love going to half-price bookstores, used bookstores, places like Goodwill. Uh, Savers are also great options. Uh, Secondhand stores that are specifically for kids. And then, of course, the library, our favorite. Um, And then once we had that library of books, one of the things that was really important to us, like especially when I was in my nesting phase of pregnancy, was I was already dreaming up a special space for reading. Like I mentioned in our classroom, we had a special space for reading. So I had this like cozy wingback chair that I would sit on and all the kids would be on the United States map. And it was like a, there was a couch over there and whatever kids like won the prize from the week before would get to sit on the couch, which was so special because when you're spending your whole day in wooden desks, you know, sitting on a colorful rug or a couch felt like a big deal. And so we wanted to translate that same special feeling from our classroom to our home. And that's why uh, I created a little reading corner in Beckett's nursery with a canopy. It's like a little tent almost hanging from the ceiling and uh, like lots of pillow, soft pillows and a cozy rug and some blankets. And of course, you know, in the very beginning baby stages, that wasn't something that we used at all. But now that he's in the toddler stage, it's a really fun place for us to curl up that makes like reading feel really special every time we go to that spot. And when we think about creating an environment for reading, something that we learned back in our education days is that children have a much easier time uh, getting drawn to books when they can see the cover. So it makes a lot of sense, right? If you can see the big, beautiful pictures on the cover, it's a lot more appealing and alluring than those skinny little spines that we see all crammed up on a bookshelf. Which like one of my least favorite phrases growing up and even still as an adult (laughs) is when people would say, don't judge a book by its cover. And I was like, no, but seriously, I judge books by the cover. Don't we all? I feel like anytime we go to a bookstore, we're totally looking at the cover. And kids do the same things. They're looking at the cover to decide if they want to read what's in the book. So something that um, I hadn't had implemented in my classroom, Jordan implemented in his classroom, was we had our homemade classroom library spent from weekends at used bookstores. And we would place the books. So instead of the spines facing out, they would be in plastic bins, kind of like shoebox bins that we would, plastic ones that we get at Target. And all the books would be in a way that you could flip through one book at a time and look at every single cover. And then they would also still fit on the shelves. So when we were creating Beckett's Nursery, that was something that we did as well was create really easily accessible eye level down on his level. So basically right now his level is so small. He's on the (laughs) ground. So these are plastic bins that we keep on the ground where he can see all the covers of all of the books. And we realized that we weren't spending as much time in his nursery as we were in our own master bedroom with him or out in the living room, which is where we spend most of our time. So we actually started creating bins for every room in the house, basically, that we spend a lot of time in. So we have a big bin in our room, the living room, his playroom, 
that nursery, basically anytime we're going to spend time in a room, we make sure that we have a plastic bin full of books that he can easily see and easily access. And that's just really helped um, make reading a natural part of every single day. And one thing I just wanted to jump in, sorry, I just want to jump in and say that as parents, we really believe that we communicate to our kids what's important and we communicate to them what's valuable, not just by what we say, but also by what we do. And especially when they're younger and they don't quite understand as much of what we're saying, a lot of our modeling and the things that we're doing is teaches them what's valuable and what's important. And a perfect example of this is I'm a little bit of a clean freak. Um, (laughs) I also eat really fast. So typically most meals that we have as a family, Um, Amy is doing something with Beckett while I'm prepping the meal. And then as soon as we put the meal down on the table, I usually eat my meal in about four to five minutes. (laughs) Amy usually eats hers in about 40 to 50 minutes. (laughs) Oh, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, (laughs) but but it's definitely slower than I think that might be a little bit of our upbringings because Amy grew up was mostly an only child growing up. And so she never had to fight for seconds. But because I grew up with an older brother and a younger brother and a younger sister, and we were all really, really hungry, especially in our elementary school years and our teenage years, it seemed like my mom always made like more food than she could possibly, you know, as much food as she could make. And there was always enough for everybody to have first and for like two people to have <laughs> like a first size portion for seconds. And so I was just trained to eat really fast, get up, get my seconds and then come back to the table. And so because of that, I usually finish eating well before Amy, well before Beckett. And I immediately start kind of like clearing plates, washing dishes, cleaning things up in the kitchen. And Beckett has picked up on that fact. And so what he does a lot of times after we're done eating a meal or whenever he's done, he gets up out of his high chair while Amy helps him out. And then he he started walking over on his own and just grabbing the towel that hangs from uh, the dishwasher. And he would immediately just start like wiping down the cabinets and wiping down the floors because he wanted to help dad. And that wasn't something that we taught him or that we initially showed him how to do or what to do. He was just modeling my behavior and he was copying my behavior. And so we realized that that's something we have to extend into every area of our life. And so we wanted to make sure that we modeled the importance of reading to our children from the very youngest of ages. And part of that looks like in our home, um, when we visited my, my, my grandfather's house a number of years ago before he passed away, um, he was a voracious reader and there were books all over his house. And so we grabbed a handful of books, more like a box full. With permission. Uh, with of permission, of course. <laughs> we, we grabbed a we grabbed them. a bunch of books because we wanted to use them to decorate in every single room of our house, partially for decoration, partially as a memento to always remember our grandparents and all the lessons that they had taught us and just as a reminder of them, but also to show our children that we value books. Um, something that I've done decided to do recently is a lot of mornings. Um, I as soon as I wake up, one of my first moves is to grab my phone. I don't know if you're like this. And I immediately would start checking the news and I would spend 15, 20, 30 minutes just scrolling and reading art and news articles on my phone. And I came to the realization like, wait a second, this is not the message I want to be communicating to my son that the very first thing I do in the morning is reach for my phone. What I wanted to communicate to him instead was the value of reading. And so I actually made a decision to spend about $25 a month on a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And instead, 
bed in the mornings, I get my newspaper and a lot of mornings I'll open up my paper newspaper. Like it actually gets delivered, delivered. to our doorstep, a news, a real newspaper. I, when Jordan told me about this, I was like, I didn't even know you could do that anymore. Yeah, and you get the digital subscription <laughs> included. It's fantastic. But one of the things that's been important for us is even at this really young age is for Beckett to kind of catch us reading, if that makes sense. So whether it's like leaving our own books on the nightstand or on the coffee table, a lot of times he'll see one of my books on the coffee table and he'll grab it and say, mama, and I'll actually pick him up and pretend to read it to him for a minute. And he'll normally show interest for a minute or two um, as he's reading, you know, quote unquote, reading this book without pictures. But the idea here is basically modeling for our kids what's important. And, and that- we, we heard some, sorry to interrupt, we mm-hmm. heard somebody say at one point more in parenting, more is caught than taught. Mm-hmm. And we just that, you know, more is caught than taught. And that just really had an impression on us. Mm-hmm. And that's also one of the reasons why we opted not to place a TV downstairs in our living room, just because we really believe parents do set the tone on what's important in our house. And so we do have a TV in the house and we're not, it's, we like watching TV. Um, we typically do it after Beckett goes to bed a couple times a week. Um, and so it's upstairs and a choice we have to make intentionally so that it's not on on the background all the time. And that really uh, fosters a living room that just feels like it's about like relationships and reading as opposed to like all sitting around staring at a screen. So Bex doesn't even really know TV is an option. Eventually, he's going to get to the age where he knows. But right now, he doesn't know and it's beautiful. So reading is like the most exciting thing that he gets to do. But it's kind of like when he was like with food, like when he was like six or seven or eight or nine months old and he started eating solids. And uh, somebody would say to us, oh, does Beckett want some ice cream? And I would say, no, he does not. And they would be like, well, why not? And I was like, because he doesn't know about ice cream yet. <laughs> so the longer that I can keep that away from him, there's going to be a time when he knows what it is and all he's going to want is ice cream after dinner. The longer I can keep that away from him, like, probably the better for his overall health. In the last couple of months, we introduced French fries to him and his life has never been the same. <laughs> anytime that we're anywhere that like has a burger place now, he's like, fry, fry, fry. <laughs> we can't blame him. We also love fries. Um, so here are just a couple things that we look for in uh, early childhood books, um, especially when they're brand new, because as uh, Beckett was first born, we started reading to Beckett almost essentially the first day he came out, um, we were starting to read to him because we knew that it was going to be an important uh, habit for us to get into, to read to him every day, even when it felt like he's brand new, he doesn't understand any of this. We wanted to start that habit off right from the beginning. So when he was a brand new baby, one of our favorite types of books for him were those high contrast black and white books. And the reason why black and white books work so well for newborns is newborns can only focus about 8 to 12 inches away from their face, which is basically like if you're the mom or the dad and you're holding the baby, cradling the baby in your arms, it's like just enough uh, for the baby to be able to see your face and really nothing else. So if you ever have somebody who's holding a newborn baby and you're across the room and somebody's like, I think he's looking at you. <laughs> you're like, no, 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 he's probably not. <laughs> um, and the crazy thing is babies, when they're brand new, can only see black, white, and gray. And it's actually several weeks before they start recognizing color. I believe the first color they see is red and then it expands from there. But it takes about five months before they can see the full spectrum of colors the way that we can see them. So those black and white books, 
uh, are really helpful during that newborn stage because it gives them something to focus on and they can see the contrast, that black and white really well, which stimulates that cognitive development and can actually help develop the optic nerves as well. So we had quite a few black and white books. And honestly, they're some of the most like mind numbing books of all, all the books we have. Um, We have this one book called Black Cat, White Cat, and it's probably one of the most mind numbing books we've ever read. But Beckett loves it and wants to read it all the time. Um, So when I'm talking about book recommendations, I think we'll include some of these in the show notes. So if you want to go back and reference any of these, uh, you can find that there. Um, We also looked for a lot of books with rhyme and rhythm. Um, Some of our favorites are like The Pout Pout Fish, Little Blue Truck. Rhyme and Rhythm is so good for uh, language development for kids because it's helping them um, with patterns, understanding sounds that repeat. And repetition is just so good for for kids of all ages, including babies. Uh, Some of our favorite repetition books are like Brown Bear, Brown Bear. Um, It's time for bed. It's time for bed, little mouse, little mouse. I have so many of these books memorized. It's kind of embarrassing. A really fun game that you can play with parents who have a baby who's like zero to like three years old is just walk up to them and say, hey, can you do the pout pout fish on command? (laughs) They probably can. It is pretty crazy to get a group of parents of littles together and see all the books that they can, they can just like spout out because kids love repetition, the same books over and over and over again. It's kind of like parents of toddlers karaoke. Yes. And we found for Beckett's age specifically, if there's too many words on the page, he just loses interest. Uh, so I'm always looking for books where there's uh, like kind of like a phrase, maybe like four lines on a page before the page turns. And those are like the perfect for his age level right now. Um, but uh, whatever the age level of your kiddo is, a great resource that I'd recommend is a book that I received as a gift at my baby shower that I read and loved. It's called Honey for a Child's Heart by Gladys Hunt. Hunt. I will definitely link that in the show notes. And it's a book where she basically has so many great ideas on how to help your child become an avid reader. And also what's cool about it is she has extensive book lists for each age. Um, and so I referenced that a lot and love it and will continue to reference it as Beckett grows. I think one of the weirdest things about reading to a baby is thinking like, okay, my newborn baby understands none of this. It's boring. Uh, it can be kind of repetitive and mundane to read the same book over and over again and no reaction is coming from your baby at the beginning, right? Like they might not even be looking at the pages. It just kind of feels like, why am I doing this? This feels really weird. But we really believe it's a discipline and so we have to start with the end in mind. Uh, One of the disciplines for us in our life, Jordan and I this year, have been trying to be a lot better about actually memorizing scripture. So passages from the Bible, which we believe is the most important book there is, we realize there's so many uh, passages that we would like to be able to reference and just haven't had the knowledge to be able to do that. And so we realize, okay, the only way we do it is like one step at a time. So we've been choosing like one passage of scripture to try to memorize. And the first one that I decided to memorize was about discipline, because I feel like it's going to be a discipline to keep this up. Um, and the the scripture was, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it, which comes from Hebrews. And I just love that idea that no discipline is pleasant at the time, meaning like, 
whatever it is, whether it's working out or eating healthy or staying on a routine or staying focused during your work day, whatever that discipline is in our lives, it's almost never pleasant at the time. It's hard. It's painful. There's something else we'd rather be doing. And when it comes to reading to our baby babies before they're even really responding, that even that could feel like a discipline of like building that in to your daily routine. But the harvest of righteousness, meaning like the good fruit that's going to come from that is going to be so worth the discipline. Yeah. The scripture that I've been working on is the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. And that's John five nineteen, And that re- was really convicting for me. And one of the reasons why I decided to order the paper newspaper, for example, is because I wanted Beckett to catch me doing things because I realized, oh my gosh, whatever I do, Beckett will do also. When we were teaching elementary school, um, we could, we, I wish that we could have played a fun game or we could have spent like two or three months with the kids and then had all the parents come to back to school night together. And I bet we could have picked out the parents in the crowd based on their children, right? Because because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree is one of the truest statements in the entire world. Um, and so one of the things that we realize, you know, just as, as people is Amy and I believe that discipline is really hard. We don't like discipline. Mm-hmm. I don't like discipline. Amy doesn't like discipline. Eating healthy isn't as fun as eating unhealthy. Working out isn't as fun as laying on the couch and watching TV. Um, reading to Beckett isn't as fun for me as letting Amy read to Beckett instead, right? <laughs> um, and so what, I actually like reading yeah, to Beckett. <laughs> but what we've realized is that all the things in our life that have been small daily disciplines or small weekly disciplines or small monthly disciplines, these small decisions that lead to great outcomes over time, which is kind of the underlying principle of this entire podcast is these small decisions we make that lead to great outcomes over time. Um, We've realized that even with our finances and our personal finances, we invest for retirement every two weeks with every paycheck, no matter what. Every two weeks, a paycheck comes in. Every two weeks, money goes into our retirement because we know that that discipline of saving every single, you know, every single month, every two weeks over a long period of time is going to produce a harvest of righteousness that we won't even be able to, uh, to really fully experience or understand for 30 or 40 years from now. And so we also realize if we are, if we try to be good, consistent investors with our money, we should also be good, consistent investors with our son. We should be good, consistent investors with our children because we believe that the mark of a great parent isn't the amount of money that they have or the amount of money they spend on their children. It is how they nourish the minds and souls of their children. It's the time and attention that we give to our son and to our children. Um, That is the mark of what will make us uh, uh, great parents, right? Um, And I think what we've realized is it's easier to have a habit and a system that's automatic where it just happens. Like we don't have to think about um, you know, our money being taken out of our paychecks and being invested into the stock market. And likewise, it's kind of stressful to set a goal. Okay, today I'm going to read for 30 minutes to my child. That can be really stressful because then you're looking for this pocket of like 30 minutes to make that happen. And if the day gets crazy and gets busy and out of control and you don't read to them for that amount of time, then you feel like a failure. And so what we realize is we need to look for habit 
triggers. We need to look for natural triggers in our day that would be a good time to form a habit of reading to Beckett. And so what we decided to do was we kind of have uh, currently like three different times during the day. He's 18 months old now. It was more before, but we have about three times a day that we read to Beckett and they're all natural triggers. And this is going to make sense to you as soon as I say it. The first thing is as soon as Beckett wakes up in the morning, as soon as he's done eating, we pull Beckett into bed with us and we read to him for probably like five or 10 minutes. So a natural trigger is he's with both of us. He's in bed. The books are there. We start his day with books and with reading. And we basically go as long as he maintains interest. So sometimes it's five or 10 minutes. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. Sometimes it's 30 minutes. But we try to really keep it based on his interest level and then move on as soon as he's disinterested and then do the same thing right before his nap. He has an afternoon nap. So um, I'll put him down for his nap and make sure that I read to him a book or two before his nap. And then same thing before bed. It's a routine that he's come to expect. And it's a, a nice uh, like nap time and bedtime trigger for him too. It starts to get him settled in and we cozy up and he lays right next to me. It's like very snuggly and cuddly. So it's really something that I love. I really look forward to reading time with him every day because it like it's just like a, such a special bonding thing for us at this point. Um, and that all that personal uh, affection and personal touch really means a lot to our kids. So to be able to associate that with reading just transfers all those warm, lovey-dovey feelings to reading, which is just going to be something that like hopefully seeps into his subconscious and the way he feels about reading. Right. He won't even, he doesn't even realize it, but he gets our time and attention and our affection and our energy when he is sitting with us reading. And so we're kind of demonstrating to him like this is what mom and dad value. Mom and dad think that reading is important. And when you read with mom and dad, that's when you get a lot of our time and attention and affection and energy. Um, so even though at the beginning when he was a newborn and we were reading to him, it kind of felt like nothing was happening. We just kept going and believing that it was making a difference. And so we would look for little signs of progress over time. So over time, we noticed like, oh, look, he's like looking at the pages now as we're reading or, oh, look, it almost looks like he's like tracking the pictures with his eyes or um, then came a new stage where he would start to like kick his legs on certain pages or when our voice would go up and down a certain way or he would say like, ooh, ooh, or then he would actually start reaching towards the book. And so these were all indicators for us. I used to love it when he would kick his little legs, like yeah. kick, 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 and then he would go, that impression is dead on though. <laughs> or a monkey. You kind of sound like a monkey. <laughs> um, he would start reaching for the books and pretty soon we were able to teach him how to turn the pages. And this was all before he could even sit up, right? He was just like laying down, snuggled right next to me. So before he was sitting up, he was turning the pages of the book because we'd show him, you know, how to take his hands, turn the page, turn the page. Then he started getting really excited about turning the pages and he would start to try to turn them too fast. Um, and pretty soon he was anticipating certain parts of books that we read a lot that he really liked a certain part. So there's like a book page on the pout pout fish where this beautiful purple fish comes into the scene and he would kick really hard and want to get to that page faster. Or there's a little blue truck Christmas book on the last page. It lights up. Um, the Christmas tree lights up and he would try to like just flip all the way to that uh, page because it was his favorite. But we've tried really hard to keep him uh, patient. And it's almost been like his very first lesson in patience has come from reading, has been like us holding 
turning the pages and saying like, not yet, let's finish this page. And then uh, pacing the book, even when he's trying to kind of get antsy, uh, especially since we're in this like, I want it now culture. It, it sounds so simple, but it's really like a first lesson in patience and delayed gratification coming from reading the whole book in order and pacing it appropriately. So we try to do that when we can. Of course, every once in a while, he just gets to the Christmas tree. Yeah. And just kind of like for a second, kind of like on a deeper philosophical point, you know, the Bible says train a child in the way he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. And that was something that was so impactful for us because even though it might seem a little bit silly to try to teach patience to a toddler while they're reading, we really believe that it's going to be a lot easier to teach him patience and delayed gratification now when it's something small and seemingly unimportant that doesn't have a serious real world consequence than it would be to wait until he's older because the older that you get, the stakes get higher, the consequences get more serious. And if he can learn not to touch the hot stove, so to speak, when he's still a little guy, hopefully we can help protect him from some of the uh, of, of life's more harsh lessons that he might learn later and down the road. And as he got older and was, you know, sitting up, could hold up his own head, could stand, could grab, couldn't walk, um, I would actually bring him to his bin of books and let him start to choose what books he wanted. I would just say, Bex, can you pick three books before nap time? And he would actually grab with his own little hands and select different books. He picked different ones almost every day. And it was one of the first times, I think the first time in his life where he had a choice in something. And so it was just like his first introduction to independence and autonomy and just having having that sense of uh, empowerment, really, for yeah. a tiny baby. A quote that really impacted us was from a, uh, a clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto named Jordan Peterson. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson says is, do not do anything for a child that he or she can do for him or herself. And that was so impactful for us because even at the early ages, right, like seven months, eight months, nine months, 10 months, 11 months, when Beckett had the capability to select from a grouping of three books, Instead of us making that decision for him, giving him that choice as soon as we realized that he was capable of doing that, um, we've tried to remind ourselves we don't do the best job at that. We still do things for him you know, on the daily that he uh, can do for himself. But we are always trying to ask ourselves that question, is this something that Beckett can do on his own? Because if it's something that Beckett can do on his own, we want to empower him with that personal responsibility and that autonomy to make that decision. And for us, having him select between you know, a grouping of three books was one of the earliest ways that we were able to give him some choice and some control over his own life. And what's fun is now that he's a walker and he can get to the book bins himself and because they're on the ground and easily accessible, he can go anytime he wants to go pick out the books. So in the morning, he just walks over, picks them up himself and we'll actually find him throughout the day, you know, going to the cabinet in the living room where the books are, picking them out and bringing them to us without prompting now, which is just like makes our teachers hearts. So happy. Um, so any other time aside from those natural triggers of bedtime, nap time, and early in the morning, we of course um, read anytime he brings us a book. Uh, so we try to keep books not only in every room, but we also keep them with us in the car um, and in the diaper bag. And anytime we travel, we pack them in our suitcase just so we always have them. 
a few of the things that we do while we're reading with him um, just to foster language development and learning would be um, not just reading the book and reading it start to finish without stopping, but doing a lot of pausing and asking him questions and engaging, making it a really social experience. When we would bring the kids on the floor in the classroom on that United States rug, one of their favorite things to do was to discuss what happened in the book together, to share their opinions and their thoughts. And they loved to express themselves and talk about the book. And it was one of the reasons they loved to read was to be able to have that time to connect socially. So we try to do the same thing with Beckett. Of course, he can't talk about like the author's word choices yet, (laughs) Um, but he can maybe tell us where the cow is. (laughs) You know, Bex, do you see a cow or do you see a clock or do you see anything that's blue? So we'll pause, ask him a question, or we'll point to something and say, oh, look, do you see the dog? What does a dog say? Woof, woof, that kind of thing. So we pause, ask him a lot of questions. We're pointing to pictures constantly to help grow his vocabulary. And I think one of the best things about reading is it introduces them to words that they might not otherwise ever know or see. Uh, We just realized the other day that we don't have any clocks in our house. We have phones and microwaves and, you know, other digital things, computers, things that tell us what time it is, but we don't have a traditional clock in our house. My mom has a couple beautiful traditional clocks in her house. The other day we went to her house, he pointed to the clock and said, clock. And I was shocked until I remembered the reason he knows that is because we read Goodnight Moon with him every night. And in Goodnight Moon, you say goodnight clocks, goodnight socks. And I'd always... I mean, Goodnight Moon is actually a little creepy. creepy. Like if you're an adult, like <laughs> just like fair warning, the kids love it. I think it's a little creepy personally, but it's fine. Yes. Can we all agree that line? Goodnight nobody, goodnight mush. Good night to the old lady who's whispering hush. It's just I'm a like, little- why is there an old lady whispering hush? This is super <laughs> weird. But I, I do think, you know, one of the things I remember the other day, not too long ago, I guess it was a while ago, not the other day, but a while ago, I was walking with Beckett um, to like the car after after we after we went to the gym and he just looked up at the sky and he said, moon, moon. <laughs> And I, my head snapped back and I was like, what? But I realized that he was making a connection because we had been reading Goodnight Moon and pointing to the moon and he was saying the word moon, but now he was connecting something that was outside of his books to something that we were reading to him. And you'll start to see those connections happen. And that is just so good for childhood brain development. And those connections are something you can continue to foster as they get much older. Um, when we were teaching that, you know, 10 and 11 year olds, making connections to their lives from the books was one of our main goals. So it's something that like you can, cont- a skill you can continue to foster as they get older and older, the connections will get deeper and the conversations will get richer. It will be a little bit more than dog, woof, woof, moon, clock over time um, is the hope anyway. Yeah. And one of the things we'll just kind of, kind of end on it as far as like this section goes, and then we're going to talk about about another thing that you can do uh, with your children to really foster language development. Um, Amy and I, a friend said to us a number of years ago that fiction reading, especially for children, but adults also, is one of the very best things that you can do to learn how to be empathetic, to learn how to have empathy. So I think, um, you know, for a lot of us, we, we don't get to experience 
everything that the world has to offer. But through books, we can walk in so many different people's shoes, so many different people who've had to experience hard things that we've never experienced, um, different life circumstances, different life situations. And one of the things that we want to try to foster, we wanted to foster in our students, that we want to foster in our children is, look, when you think about the scope of human history and the thousands and thousands of years that people have been on this planet, um, I read a statistic the other day that up until like 100 or 200 years ago, Almost the entire world lived in what we would consider extreme poverty today. And it's so hard for our children who are growing up in 2019, right, 2020 and beyond to understand just how privileged they are. And it doesn't matter what type of home you come from in the United States of America. You are still so blessed by the world standard and you're so blessed by historical standards. And the only way that our our children are going to get to exercise that empathy muscle where they can really have care and kindness and concern and passion for other people who are less fortunate or have gone through traumatic experiences a lot of times is through reading. And so we want them to uh, to really learn to appreciate just how blessed they are and how fortunate they are um, in, in, by using books to go places they would never otherwise go. And one last thing I just want to say is if you're listening right now, it might seem like Amy and I do not believe in playing. <laughs> it might <laughs> like, seem, do you guys just like read with your kid all day? Like, <laughs> no, I would tear my hair out, right? There's only so much that I can read and that Amy can read. Um, but we are pro play. And one thing I just wanted to mention is that, um, especially for boys, but for girls also, um, physical play is just as important in our opinion as reading in terms of, um, uh, kind of like brain development goes all the science and all the studies bear this out that it's so important for children to have physical play and physical activity and that their brain is actually developing through touch and through sensory and through those kind of experiences. And I think the cool thing is that language development has happens through a lot more than just reading. And something that Jordan and I have really been trying to challenge each other on and trying to hold ourselves accountable to is the idea of passive parenting versus active parenting, which is hard and something that we have to like stop and remind ourselves all the time. And what we mean by that, passive parenting would be like, we're sitting in a room with our son, but we're not necessarily actively engaging. So we're not having a conversation or like teaching him how to color or coloring and naming the colors or playing basketball with him. Instead, we might just be like sitting in the room, maybe drawn to our phones, for example, just not paying much attention um, to what's going on. He's in the room, but we're not really engaged. And we've even caught ourselves on occasion. You know, I'll be sitting in the living room and I'm on my phone and Beckett's in there and he might be playing with his toys or doing something. And Amy might text me and be like, hey, how's Bex doing? And I'll say, he's doing fine. And I'm pausing right now because there's a problem for me with that statement. When I would say to Amy, he's doing fine, fine for us is not the standard. And sometimes for us, it's okay to let Beckett just play and do independent play. And that's a good skill to develop also. But if I'm not careful as a dad, it's very easy for me, as long as he's not causing a problem or breaking something or running off and doing something he shouldn't be. Sometimes I'm content just to sit there and scroll through my phone or do something that I want to do, even though he's there right in front of me. And just because he's busy and he's fine doesn't mean that I'm 
actively engaging with him as his father and doing everything I can to nourish his mind and his soul and to teach him things. So we've really tried to as much as possible, and we are definitely not perfect at this and still like every day have to remind ourselves of this to try to stay in the active parenting role, thinking like, okay, what, how can I make the most of the situation? How can I make this a relational win or an educational win? How can I nourish his mind or his soul? So one of the things that we've done to try to promote language development early, early on, because um, we, I think we, we mentioned another episode, we never considered ourselves quote unquote baby people. So when he was a baby, this was especially tricky. It's a lot more uh, fun now to interact with him because he talks a little bit, he plays basketball, he colors. But when he was a younger, he didn't do anything. He just like sat there, right? And so that can be a really challenging time to be a quote unquote active parent. Um, so one of the things that we would try to do is we know how important it is for kids to hear words. So not just through words, uh, sorry, not just through reading, but also through conversation. So we would start, which feels so weird, we would start narrating life, meaning like I would take him to the diaper changing table and say, okay, Bex, it's time for me to change your diaper. I'm going to change your diaper now by giving you a fresh diaper. I'm going to pull out the diaper cream and then we're going to put some new pajamas on and, you know, whatever. I would basically just tell him what I was doing. Kind as of think I was of it like it. if you ever watch like a Dateline murder mystery, the <laughs> idea of like every Dateline murder mystery, and we are big fans, we love them, um, <laughs> it starts with like, they're like, a, it's like a dark and stormy night, right? And like the camera's panning onto a beach. In and small and town. you'll hear that guy, the guy with the white hair who Keith looks Keith Olbermann. Keith, no, not Keith right? Olbermann. Is that Keith, his name? No. Oh, Keith Morrison. 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 Keith Morrison. <laughs> and Keith Morrison will be like, it was a dark and stormy night in a quiet town. The beach was empty. No one was there. The perfect place for a murder. And then like the thunder cracks, you know, and the whole time he's narrating, they're showing the visual of what's going on. And so um, another example for me would be like when I take Beckett to the gym most days in the afternoon, um, I don't start like Beckett. It was a normal sunny day. I don't use that kind of voice, but that would be creepier than goodnight moon. Yeah, it's super creepy. Um, but as we're driving into the gym parking lot, I might start narrating life for Beckett and saying, OK, Bex, like we're pulling into the parking lot right now. Like we're going to park the car. That's where you put cars in a parking Parking lot. If you look out the window right now, you can see that we're still moving. But when we're not moving anymore, that means we're stopped. And when we're stopped, that means the car is parked. And when the car is parked, I'm going to turn off the engine. And the engine is the thing that runs the car and makes the car go vroom, vroom. And I'm going to turn the car off. I'm going to open my door. I'm going to come around to your side. I'm going to open your door. I'm going to get you out of your car seat. And so now like I'm getting out of the car, right? And I'm like, okay, Bex, I'm going to get you out of your car seat. Are we going to the kids club right now at the gym? And he'll be like, yeah. And I'd be like, who are we going to see? Are some of your friends there? Is Miss Dawn there? Is Miss Jessica there? Is Miss Savannah there? And he's like, yeah. And we close the door and I'm like, okay, Bex, we're walking to kids club now. Can you look down at the ground, Bex? Do you see the black pavement? This is called asphalt. This is the street. Remember when we were with mom last week and you had to hold her hand when we were walking across this because it's not safe for little kids to walk in the street all by themselves. You kind of get the point, right? Yes. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Right? Like I'm exhausted just listening to Jordan do that. I'm exhausted listening to myself. <laughs> and it's a little mind numbing in a way, but it is so good for our kids. And I think the crazy thing about 
about that language is um, we know from research that children's academic successes when they're around the age that we taught, so like fourth, fifth grade, nine, 10, 11 years old, can be directly attributed to the amount of talk they heard from birth to age three. So it's hard because we don't really know what to say to our babies and they don't necessarily talk back. Um, So narrating life, even uh, for as uh, goofy as it may feel or uncomfortable and and awkward, um, it makes such a big difference. And I think the crazy thing is um, the research has shown that mothers who spoke to their infants um, more frequently, uh, their children learned about 300 more words by the age of two than their peers whose moms didn't speak to them as regularly. And so it's almost just a discipline that we've had to get into of doing things that feel a little awkward and uncomfortable. And now that he's in the 18-month stage, he is starting to uh, engage back and talk, but his vocabulary is still very limited. So we're continuing to grow his language development um, by by doing a, a couple things. So one of the things that we do is we typically, as you probably heard in Jordan's uh, example, he, we talk at a little bit of a slower pace with a little bit of a higher voice. We overly enunciate so that he can really hear all the language sounds. And we just have to believe that what we're doing is making a difference. Um, and we have to believe that we're going to, every time he says one or two words, we're going to affirm that. And we're going to repeat back what he said the correct way, because right now he's saying all of his words in a way that is really cute, but typically not correct. Yeah. Like and the word black, when he's coloring, he wants the black crayon, he'll say blap. <laughs> just little cute things and like that. And say, good job, Beck. Yeah, you but- want the black. Right. And so we're always like affirming. Um, Giving, giving him positive praise anytime he's trying to use language. And we're repeating it back to him to make sure that he's getting the pronoun, that he's hearing the correct pronunciation, even if he's not saying the correct, correct pronunciation. Mm-hmm. And I was like having a hard time pron- pr- like pr- pronouncing that, the <laughs> pronunciation. Um, but one thing that we read that was really shocking to us, but not that surprising, is that on average, um, the a, a child from ages zero to five in a high-income home Here's 30 million more words than a child from zero to five in a lower income home. 30 million words. That is a lot of words. And that was a statistic that really convicted us because we realized, wait a second, this is more his, his language development is more than just reading. It's also the number of words that we speak to him. And I think we see a lot of people, you know, that wear those little Fitbits and people are like, I'm getting my steps in. I'm trying to get my steps in. I remember when my parents were getting ready to go for a trip to Europe, they were kind of like trying to get a certain, you know, 10,000 steps in every single day because that's how much they were going to be walking while they were in Europe and they were trying to build up to it. And so Amy and I have had to stop and pause and try to challenge ourselves and say, wait a second, we've got to get our words in with our son. Like it's important to get your steps in. That's good for you and your health, but we want to make sure we get our words in because we've only got five years to hit that 30 million word mark in order to set our child up for a future of economic success, right? As well as just you know, kind of the verbal and the language development. And so the ramifications of all of this go so much deeper um, than just, you know, how soon do they talk, right? Mm-hmm. Or something like that. And even when they're not talking, I think that's probably one of our biggest encouragements to parents is to know that you're doing a good job. It's kind of like when you first start working out, the first day you go to do a workout, it's hard and it's painful. 
And the next day you wake up and you don't look any different, right? And it's kind of frustrating because it's like, oh man, I put in all that hard work to yesterday. And, and I just feel sore. And I'm like, I haven't lost any weight yet, right? It's it's that discipline over time that leads to great results. And it's the same thing as far as language development goes. There's going to be a long period, but from the time they're born to the time they start talking, and it's different for every kiddo. Um, so the important thing is to understand like we have to keep going. We have to believe even if this feels weird or awkward, that every time we're getting in our words or reading books, that these things are really making a difference and over time are really going to be advantageous for our kids. Yeah. And you know, since Amy and I were elementary school teachers before we were photographers, um, a lot of people ask us now that we have children, so what are you going to do with your kids? Like you guys were elementary school teachers. You work from home together. Are you going to homeschool your kids? Are you going to put them in a public school? Are you going to put them in a charter school? Are you going to put them in a private school? And what are you going to do with your kids? And the answer to that is the jury is still out. We mm-hmm. haven't made a final decision. We have two or three more years before we have to make a decision on that. But one thing that I can tell you is that whether we decide to homeschool our children or put them in a public school or put them in a private school or put them in a charter school, Um, And, you know, we believe that there are that every child is different, right, and distinct and has different needs. And so there could be um, for a lot of kids, public is the right option for a lot of kids. Private is the right option for a lot of kids. Homeschool is the right option. But one thing that Amy and I believe down to our core and that we believe that we hope that all parents would take this same posture and this same stance is that our children's education is our responsibility. Our children's education is our responsibility. Our children's education is not the school's responsibility. Just the same way that our children's spiritual development is not the church's responsibility. Amy and I believe that as uh, our children are gifts to us on loan from God and that our job is to educate them. And so we believe that regardless of what school we put our children in, that we believe that every parent, including us, should be practicing home education because we believe that the school should be a supplement to what we're doing at home and not the other way around. And the nine and 10 year olds that we got in fourth grade and in fifth grade who were secure, who were confident, who were happy, who were healthy, who had an academic identity that you could tell they were going to go on to do great things in school and in their career and in all areas of life. It was clear and obvious to us that their parents had practiced home education from a very, very early age and took the personal responsibility on themselves to make sure. And we look at it like this. We don't look at it like the school is responsible to educate our children. We look at it like we're responsible to educate our children and we're going to operate as if the school will teach them nothing. And we're going to operate as if we are the only ones who are going to teach them anything. Now, we know that's not true. There are amazing teachers all over the country who get up every day and do an incredible job to pour into children and to love them and to grow them and to advance them and to teach them all kinds of things that they wouldn't otherwise have learned at home. But we want to operate under that assumption because when we do that, we feel like we're contributing to the greater good. I can remember being an elementary school teacher and thinking to myself, you know, you had these five or 10 kids in the class who were so well adjusted. They were so smart. They were doing so well. And we were not always able to give them the attention that they deserved because a lot of times we were focusing on kids who needed more help. And sometimes there are kids who need more help because they need more help. 
Sometimes there are kids who are born with different special needs and different disabilities that they need more help from the teacher. They need more help from the special special education director. They need more help from a parapro. They need more, right? And we know parents who just did everything they could possibly do for their children who had special needs or, or a disability, and we applaud them. We are in awe of them. But there was another segment of kids where it was clear and obvious to us as teachers that the parents hadn't spoken 30 million words to them from zero to five, that the parents hadn't spent time doing reading with them consistently every day over time. And you know what? It not only hurt those children, but it also hurt the other kids in class who got less attention from the teacher because the teachers had to focus on getting kids up to grade level instead of taking a bunch of kids who were on grade level and advancing them. And that's a little bit of a commentary just on like a general problem that we have in our country right now about personal responsibility. But it's something Amy and I believe so strongly strongly because we believe we have a responsibility, not just to our children, but we have a responsibility as parents to other people's children that our kids aren't taking away resources from kids who desperately need them because of something they were born with, because we failed to do our job as parents when they were in our home. And so I know that sounds like a little bit of a soapbox, but you know, we were listening to a sermon the other day by Andy Stanley, one of our favorite pastors in America. And he said, what breaks your heart? Like, what is something in this world that breaks your heart? And something in this world that broke our heart and continues to break our heart is when we would get a nine or a 10-year-old who would come into a fifth grade classroom who couldn't read. And we knew that no matter how much we loved them, no matter how much we supported them, no matter how much help the government threw at them or the school threw at them, that they were in for a really hard, really tough life. And most of the time, outside of that handful of a percentage um, where the chi- it was no fault of the child and no fault of the parents, most of the time it was avoidable. It was avoidable. And so that's why we're so passionate about reading to kids from zero to five, about narrating their life and speaking to them and doing that language development because we know it's good for them and we know it's good for everybody else. And so we don't say any of that to to scare you or make you feel bad. We don't want you to look back on your life or the way you raise kids or the way you're raising them and have any regrets. We want it to be something that's an encouragement to all of us as parents in the community of parents to raise great kids. And I think one of the ways that we raise great kids is by giving them the skills that they need at the earliest of ages so they can be successful and set up for success in the rest of your life and, and their life. And so what we want to do today is give you five very practical takeaways that if you are a parent of a kid zero to 10, if you interact with kids zero to 10 because you're a grandmother or a grandfather or you work in a daycare or a nursery or you volunteer at the church or whatever the situation is, you're a babysitter who watches a kid and you have a choice between TV or reading, we want to encourage you on five things that you can do for your children to help them become great readers and great communicators and develop their language at as fast and as good of a pace as possible so that they can have a better outcome overall in life. And so the first thing, number one, is we want to find natural triggers to weave reading into your daily schedule. We shared earlier that those natural triggers for us with our kids were nap time. And so if you want to use that with your kids, um, that would be a great way to do that. Number two, What are the environmental changes that we can make in our home to foster reading? Maybe it's getting those 99 cent plastic bins from Target and putting the book, a bin of books in every single room so that everywhere your child goes, 
they see that reading is something that's important to mom and dad. Um, the third thing we want to do is narrate our baby's life to promote language development. At first, they're not going to understand. You know what? You might feel like you're the crazy person. You might feel like you're talking to this baby or this toddler and they're not responding back and it doesn't seem like they know what you're saying. And you're like, man, I just look like the village idiot. I look like a crazy person. But you know what's so funny? Every day that I take Becca to the gym and I'm on that walk from the car to the front door and I'm narrating life for him, I usually see not from teenagers, maybe not from people who are younger and maybe don't yet have kids, but from people who you can tell are older and wiser and more experienced who've had children. They usually look at us while Becca and I are talking or while I'm talking to him and they usually kind of kind of shoot us the smile, almost like, good job, dad, keep going. And so just remember that um, you might feel like you're crazy, but you're not crazy and you're doing something that's going to benefit your child's life in the long run. Um, another thing we want is number four, which is to repeat back their words. Every time that Beckett says something to us. We try to repeat it back. We try to enunciate it. Um, no matter if he's going to say it right the next time or not with blap and black, we've been saying black to him for six months and he keeps saying blap and that's okay. We're going to keep repeating that word back to him and we're going to keep extending on his stories. If Beckett says to me something like, uh, dada, uh oh, and then he points down at the ground, I'm going to say, Oh, buddy, are you thinking about a time when Dada made an uh-oh and spilled the water on the ground? Beckett looks at me and goes, yeah. And so I always want to try to take the one or two words that he understands and extend that to try to get the idea that, of what he's actually talking about. And the last thing, number five, and this is maybe the most important thing. Um, when we used to work, and we still do, when we used to work with photographers and teach them how to run great businesses, one of the things we would tell them is, I should be able to go into any area of your business, look at something and ask the question, why? Why do you do this that way? Why do you do that this way? And if I ask the question, why, you should have an answer. And if you don't have an answer, then go find an answer. In other words, we want there to be a why behind everything that we do. And so we've translated that into our illustrious 18 months of parenting with Beckett. <laughs> and we are always asking ourselves a question that we want to encourage you to ask a question of yourself too, which is right now, Am I passively parenting or am I actively parenting? Am I passively parenting or am I actively engaging? Is there something right now that I could be teaching my child? Is there an experience right now that I could be giving them? When I look around at my environment, when I look around at this room, is there something that I could be doing with them other than just letting them play the same game they always play or play with the same toy they always play or read the same book they always read? Is there something that I can do with them right now to teach them something that, that, will, that will foster language development and brain development because we know how critical those first five years are? And so those are your five takeaways for this episode. Guys, we really hope that this episode, no matter what stage of parenting you're in, helps you to feel empowered and encouraged and confident that now you have some practical tools that you can use in your tool belt to give your kids one of life's most important gifts. Thank you for listening to Life with Amy and Jordan. If this episode was helpful to you, we'd love for you to leave us a review. And if it wasn't, please don't. <laughs> Seriously, a review from you will help us reach more awesome people like you. To get the newest episode as soon as it's available, hit the subscribe button. 